First Kings. So starting chapter 1, verse 1, 1 through 4. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for my Lord, the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my Lord, the king, may be warm. So they sought uh, for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him. But the king knew her not. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for uh, this opportunity we have to start study of another book, uh, especially in the Old Testament as we see the new covenant in the old covenant. Uh, I pray that as we study First uh, Kings over the next few months that you would um, each week uh, point us to Christ and help us see that there is only one king, one great king in our life, and that's King Jesus. And that as we see a list of uh, somewhat good and somewhat bad kings as we study through First King, Lord, that you would each week help us understand and uh, remind us of the greatness of who you are, that you are the great king, the great Messiah, the savior of our soul. Be with us now as we study your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are uh, going to do an introduction of First Kings. And uh, the way, can you turn the house lights up just a little bit? I feel like I can barely see y'all. There you are, a little bit better. There we go. So um, we are uh, going to, what we're going to do is we're going to understand the book of First Kings by understanding why First Kings starts with the death of David and who is David. So David's not really a major player in First Kings, but in order to really, I think, get a good handle on First and Second Kings, uh, it's good to understand who David is. So we're going to talk about who is David today. Now, um, a little bit of introduction on the book itself, First Kings. So you have this little section of the Old Testament that are called former prophets. And in that, you've got Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And this is how kind of Israel's getting started. As a matter of fact, First and Second Kings in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, um, First and Second Kings are actually just known as the Third and Fourth Kingdoms. So First and Second Samuel are known as the First and Second Kingdoms. First and Second Kings are known as the Third and Fourth Kingdoms. Kingdom. So really 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings are one giant tome of helping us understand how the kingdoms got started and how Israel became a monarchy and, and really the fall of the monarchy. So that being the case, if, if each one of those four books had a theme, 1 Samuel would be build, 2 Samuel would be arrive, and our books that we're looking at, 1 Kings will be decline so we're looking at decline. Second Kings is fall. So we're missing the, the building and the arrival of first and second Samuel. We're starting in first Kings and we're going to see decline and fall. So uh, what we'll see here as we study through is the different kings of Israel. Uh, we'll see their conduct. Uh, we'll see what's going to happen as we study through first Kings, this survival of David, David's lineage. And we're going to talk about this, but in second Samuel chapter seven, verse 13, this amazing promise is made to King David by God. And so the, the, the smart readers looking, what's going to happen to David's lineage? What's going to happen? And as we study through first Kings, we'll, we'll see that. We'll also see how Kings use their power, both for good and both for bad. 
and how the nation of Israel itself is going to have any kind of longevity. And so as we go through 1 Kings, we'll see numerous things that will help us. We'll see instruction, not just for Israel, but for ourselves. We'll see encouragement, not just for Israel, but for ourselves. But we'll also see hope, not just for Israel, but for ourselves. That's in the midst of decline and fall. In the midst of decline and fall, it still speaks to us as a church today and gives us instruction, gives us encouragement, and gives us hope. And we certainly need these blessings so that we can endure faithfully um, in our lives. So what's going on as we pick up in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1? We're at the end of the life of David, as we we see here. Now, King David was old, so he's old and cold. That's where we're picking up as as King David is old and cold. And we're trying to figure out what's really going on in the middle of uh, picking up in the third and fourth kingdoms, if you will. So here's the purpose of 1 Kings, as Donald Wiseman tells us. 1 Kings, the purpose of it is it serves for all time as a warning of the inevitable retributive judgment brought on by themselves by those who deviate and worship and practice. So Israel throughout the book is going to have problems with worship. They're going to have idolatry and it's going to show what happens whenever you have a heart that is idolatrous rather than worshiping true Yahweh, when worshiping God, you're going to see the inevitable judgment that's brought on. And it says also, as you deviate from worship and practice, yet as an encouragement then to follow God, receive his blessings promised for those who are obedient to his law, even in times of exile. So uh, eventually when other people take over the kingdom and they're sent out in exile, you'll also see how God is, God is faithful. It's also a reminder of God's preserving love and grace despite when he's rebuffed by his people. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the big picture purpose for us of 1 Kings. But there's, there's some... Uh, themes in it as well. I actually put the themes in this little uh, devotional here. So if you go to, uh, I guess what would be page seven and eight, these three themes will be in this little devotional here as well. But there's there's three themes uh, that kind of dominate the the book of First Kings. One is like nation, like king. Basically, uh, that means that the the lesson is that when the king fears the Lord. The nation will follow the king and they'll feel the Lord as well. But also, because there's several lists of kings as you go through 1 Kings, when the king does evil, the nation follows the king and becomes idolatrous and immoral. So uh, like the king is how the nation will follow. The second uh, theme that we'll see in the book of Kings is the prophets. And this means during the periods of these kings and the monarchy, whenever they would make compromises in politics or compromises in religion with their Gentile neighbors, things that were not pleasing to God, then God would send a prophet to come and speak to the king as a check to the king and call the king to repentance and therefore call all of the people back to repentance. Um, and so we'll see this as a, as a theme because the Lord obviously does this to, uh, with us through the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then the last theme is division. And the overall assessment of this period of monarchy is that there's a failure that's happening. As we said, it's decline and fall. There's a failure. Only the first king in first kings after David dies uh, is the king of a united Israel. After Solomon dies, who, who's the only one, he's the only one. After Solomon dies, as the video shows us, the king split, I'm sorry, the kingdom splits. And the rest of it is just telling us the story of how there's two kingdoms instead of one and how eventually both of them are 
Uh, both of them are taken over by outsiders. But So we see another theme is division. And the overall assessment of this time of the monarchy is that there's failure. And Israel continually will break covenant with the Lord. And most of the kings that we'll read will not be good kings. They won't be effective kings. And most of the kings are wicked. They don't lead well. And this poor leadership leads the 12 tribes to divide in the north and the south. And as I said, by the end of 2 Kings, they're overtaken and destroyed by powers from external powers that take them and exile them out of their own land. So poor leadership leads to the, destru- excuse me, the destruction of Israel. Um, so as we're looking at 1 Kings, Tony Morita tells us that there's therefore three big picture applications that we can take from 1 Kings. As we're thinking about uh, how can we apply the whole of this book to our life, there's three ways. These actually be on the screen. Um, worship, word, and weakness. Worship, word, and weakness. Uh, when we talk about worship, Israel was called to worship God and worship him alone, and they don't. Instead, they practice idolatry. And so Solomon is going to build the temple for them to be able to worship, every, uh, worship the Lord. But uh, even Solomon falls into idolatry. Uh, and so the takeaway for us, therefore, is that we're not to be like them. Instead, we are to be worshipers and worshipers of God alone. That's one of the major applications that we can see is that there's a problem with worship and that we're called to worship God alone. The next one is the word. Israel was called to live by God's word. The kings largely did not live by God's word. God would send prophets to them, Elijah, Elisha, etc., to come speak the word of God to them. And sometimes that would be good. At one point, as you go through, you'll see Josiah himself. They're so far away from the word. Josiah actually recovers the word of God for his people and delivers it to them. Uh, the and the book of Deuteronomy is repeated throughout the book of First Kings, which is helping them see God's word and God's law. And so uh, the, the word itself, God's word, is a, is a dominant theme and application that happens in First King. And therefore, just like worship shows us that we're supposed to be worshipers of God, the theme of worship shows us that we're supposed to also be people of the book. Like we are, we are called to be people that read and follow and live and understand and know the book of God the scriptures, specifically not just for knowledge sake, but obviously so that we know Jesus. Um, the point of reading, being a people of the book is that you become someone who sees and understands who Christ is more and your heart is drawn to Jesus. Nevertheless, the third one is weakness, weakness. And the main thing that we'll see here is weakness. Uh, the theme, the application of weakness points us to Jesus. And here's how, as we go through first and second Kings, we're going to see that human leader kings, Jesus was human, um, human leader kings in the Bible here um, that are not Jesus are limited and frail. They're limited and frail. It helps us see that all humans, all people besides Jesus at some point are going to fail us. And so therefore they cannot be our hope. Nothing and no person besides Jesus can ever be our hope. It shows us weakness and therefore points us that we actually need another king, the ultimate son of David king. And unlike all the kings of first kings and second kings who fail and fail the people, Jesus never fails us. Jesus never fails us. And so we look to him. So if worship shows us that we're to be worshipers of God, if the word shows us that we're to be people of the book, weakness shows us that we're to be worshipers of the king, that we only look to our king, Jesus. And so those three applications are the the big picture applications. There's going to be tons as we go through. 
Uh, but those are three big picture applications as we go through First Kings. Now, let's look at the text here and get an understanding of uh, what's going on. We talked a little bit about uh, the, what's going on in First Kings. And also, um, as far as authorship goes, we don't know. We don't know who. The, I, I, I read commentaries for 20 and 30 pages that they would deal with the authorship. 20 and 30 pages. And we're talking like five and six different commentaries. They would deal with the authorship for 20 pages. All to say, well, we really don't know. <laughs> so we don't know. It, it could even be two people. It could, there's a lot of whatever. It, it's a lot of boring stuff. Anyway, um, so here we are. The Bible's not boring, but some of those commentaries on the authorship of First Kings was boring. All right. Um, verse, verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. Um, now, King David was old and advanced in years. As I said, he's old and cold. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord, the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord, the king, may be warm. So they sought a, for a beautiful young woman all throughout the territory of Israel. And they found Abishag the Shunammite. They brought her to the king. And the young woman was very beautiful. And she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. So as David is nearing the end of his life in Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, in, in verses 1 through 4 of 1 Kings, we're, we're opening with the death of David. This is what the, first, the, the main point that we should get out of verses 1 through 4 is not Abishag and the, the Israel beauty contest and who's going to be the, the woman that lays with David and keeps him warm. The main thing that we should take away from this is David is dying. So if we, if we read the New Testament, this is what, whenever we read uh, other books, dominant figures of the Old Testament die at the end of their books. At the end of Genesis, you have someone, uh, you have Moses dying. Um, at the end of, I'm sorry, the, the Pentateuch. Uh, and at the, at the end of Genesis, you have Joseph dying. At the end of Joshua, obviously Joshua's dying. So you have, um, you have major figures dying at end of books. But First King is, Kings is beginning with um, someone, a major figure dying at the beginning. And this fits the motif of First Kings because... First Kings is about decline and fa- failure. And so it's not ending with David dying. It's beginning with David dying, which is setting the stage for us to understand uh, this is not going to be a happy book. This is probably going to be bad. <laughs> and so it's, it's beginning with David uh, dying for us. And so uh, an important application for us in this particular, as we read, is that is this. Israel is in a time of flux and crisis because it starts with David dying, as they've been before. Their leader is dying. They've seen this before from Joseph to Moses to Joshua. Uh, leaders have been raised up by God. They serve the people of Israel. They're strong leaders, but every single one of them, after they're raised up, they die and another leader has to be sought. Uh, and this particular time is no different. But one thing that happens is there is someone that's raised up who leads. And so what we can see then, therefore, is that there's a There's a big, huge, steady hand behind all the scenes guiding Israel always and is there for them. And so whatever leadership is happening, the the key for us to understand is that there's a there's a sovereign God guiding his people Israel and preserving them. Therefore, an application for us as we look at verses one through one through four is this same for for our church, not just for our church, but for so local church and every local church, but church universal is this. Um, there's ups and downs in churches, just like there is an ups and downs throughout the people of Israel. Um, 
There's ups and downs in every church. There's ups and downs in the church, local and universal. But God, just like he's the steady hand behind all of human history, preserving it for, for Israel, he's also the steady hand behind us, preserving his people, the church, today. He is preserving us, and he is the steady hand keeping us um, going on. As, as leaders will rise and fall in Remedy Church, as leaders will rise and fall in evangelicalism, uh, what, uh, Nationwide, worldwide, we shouldn't be too nervous that, oh no, so-and-so is gone. Now what will we do? Uh, Because there's a greater king leading us, which is King Jesus. And so um, the important application as we see here as David dies is God is still good. Now, um, they're they're certainly going to have a decline, but nevertheless, here we are today still worshiping God. And so we can see the evidence that he still is sovereign and good. So one of the weaknesses of David, as we're getting, as you, as you get into, uh, which we'll get into next week, we're going to look at chapters one and two next week. One of the weaknesses of David, as he's almost dead, you know, he's, he's so old and about dead that he can't even keep himself warm, is he still has failed to name who's going to follow him on the throne. More weaknesses to come on David in just a, a little bit. But one of the uh, weaknesses of David is that he hasn't even named someone. So who's going to be the next king? Uh, we're we're going to see how it plays out here uh, in, in the rest of chapter 1 and 2. But you've got two sons, Adonijah and Solomon, who both seemingly want it and are trying to position themselves to take it. And David, still out of his failure of leadership, hasn't even named who's going to be next. Uh, but one of the things I want to key in on is this. Um, because you might be wondering, why is this here? Uh, verse four, the young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him. And here it is. But the king knew her not, but the king knew her not. Um, I don't know why they had to find the most beautiful woman, in all of Israel to come and lay with him to keep him warm. Um, he had eight wives. He, he didn't need someone else. I don't know why they had to have the most beautiful just to keep him warm. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it does say, and he knew her not. So you might wonder, since they had to bring someone beautiful to try to keep him warm, is this some kind of test for David? And, and, and twofold. Is it a virility test saying, well, if he's strong enough to to know her then maybe he's still strong enough to rule and they're they're just wondering like is 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 david strong enough to be king or is it a moral test like we we know if you don't know we'll talk about it he has this massive moral failure with bathsheba and is this a moral test of david now he's not not strong enough to rule but strong enough to withstand temptation um i don't know that either one of those are necessarily what's going on uh the text isn't clear enough to us um i think it's just simply a statement that he's that old that he can't do anything um and that abishag literally was just there to serve him and keep him warm i don't know why they had to find the most beautiful woman in the world at the time to keep him warm. But nevertheless, that's what they did. Um, in their view, the most beautiful, whatever. So, but he did have other wives that could have done it, but they brought her. Um, but this is the end of David's life. And we're trying to figure out now, okay, well, well who is David? What are some things that we need to know about David to help us understand the rest of first Kings? So what I want to do then is, uh, 
talk about who David is. So we're going to, we're going to be doing some referencing to First and Second Samuel to get an idea of who he is so that as we study First Kings, it's crucial, in my view, to understand really Solomon and all of the kingdoms and everything that's going to follow. It's crucial for us to understand who David is, um, what are some of the highlights of his life, and what are some of the lowlights of his life to understand First Kings. So uh, who's David? It helps us understand because it helps us understand. It matters because it helps us understand the setting of First Kings. He's described in numerous places, and you probably have heard this as a man after God's own heart. He's got significant problems, but also has some amazing strengths. Um, he was the second king of Israel after Saul. Saul was the very first king, uh, and likely. You know, it seems to be from all of scripture, David was clearly the best king that Israel had. Uh, He was certainly seemingly the most important, if not the most notable, at least, of all of Israel. From Saul to David to Solomon, the only three that were kings of the United Kingdom. After that, whenever it split, you've got other kings. But David seems to be the most well-known, the most important, the most notable of all the monarchy in Israel. Um, So why was there even a monarchy in Israel? Uh, What? Why, why are there kings? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel did not have a king at the time. They didn't have a king, but they look around at all the other nations and they say, well, all the other nations have kings. We want to be like all the other nations. That's bad. That's bad. You don't need to look like the other nations. You're God's people. And they say, God, we want to have a king that will judge us and go out and fight our battles, etc. And God tells them, well, why do you need that? I'm your king. Why would you need a human king that can do that? I'm your king. And they say, we reject you basically as our king. We want to look like all the other nations and have a human king that will judge us and fight our battles. And amazing, God grants their request in First, in first Samuel chapter 8 and gives them Saul and then eventually gives them David. Um, so David himself was born around 1040 BC. He has had several uh, occupations from shepherd to warrior to and some of these at the same time. Shepherd, uh, he had a humble beginning. Warrior, he fought a lot of battles. Writer, he wrote many psalms. Uh, king, he was that king for 33 years. Instrumentalist, he played the harp for Saul and even later. Uh, and of course, worshiper of Yahweh. So these are some of the bio things about him. But what are some of the highlight points of David's life as king? What are some of the things he's done before we get to this point? I've got, I've got some that will be up on the screen here. I'll go one at a time. Likely the, uh, the most familiar one is, comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17 is whenever he fights Goliath. Uh, there's this massive giant who's t- Philistine taunting all the people of Israel in this valley and no one can go out there and fight him and everybody's afraid and there's kind of this standstill and David's brothers are up there. David's the youngest of seven and David's brothers out there. Nobody wants to fight and David's sent to bring some cheese pizzas, bread and cheese, so cheese pizzas to him. And while he's there, he's like, we got to fight this guy. Look at him taunting us. We got to do something. And they're like, well, I mean, look at him. He's like nine feet tall. He's huge. He's like, I'll do it. And so he puts on Saul's armor and it's too big and clunky. He takes it off. He goes out there, you know, he kills Goliath with his slingshot. He falls down, he chops his head off with a sword and he holds his head up and they're like, yeah, you know, so it's a big, huge thing. It's, it shows it. For us, when we look at First uh, Samuel 17, one of the main things that it's showing us is that this man, David, has great faith in God. It, it's not that he knew that he was awesome, therefore he could defeat Goliath. It's that he knew God's awesome and God's faithful. And if I go out there and trust God, God's going to do something and God's awesome. And so this highlight of David's life where he, it really ushers him into 
um, the people of Israel thinking that he's, this, this guy's pretty amazing. Um, it shows his great faith as he defeats Goliath. The next thing that we can see where David, uh, another highlight is at this particular time from 1 Samuel 17 all the way to about 1 Samuel 24, Saul is the king and people... It's, David's even been anointed as king, but he's not t- assuming the role. Saul's making some bad decisions. And, but nevertheless, uh, in the Saul situation, this is number two, uh, David actually spares his life. David could have killed Saul and taken over and become king early, but he doesn't. Like a highlight of David's life is that he trusts God and trusts God's timing. As a matter of fact, there was once where Saul was in a cave and David's in the cave and Saul doesn't know. And David like cuts the corner off his, off his shirt. And then Saul leaves and he like sends it to him and said, I could have killed you. And I didn't like, that's the kind of guy I am. I didn't do that. And he, he spares his life. And so, um, we see here that David is a man of integrity. He shows great faith. He's also a man of integrity. Um, he looks around later on as he's king and he's like, I live in this amazing house and God, we keep him in, in, in basically a shack. This isn't good. I have a deep desire, God, to build a temple for you. Now, he's not allowed to. Um, Solomon, he said, David, you fought in too many wars. Your son Solomon's going to build the temple. But it's great that you have that desire. Uh, and he even, in First Chronicles 22, starts getting all the materials together that even after he dies, the materials are gathered for the temple to be built. And so we see that he's a man of great faith, a man of, of uh, somewhat integrity when, it deal, when he deals with Saul. But also he just has this reverence for God. He's like, this isn't right that God's house isn't, uh, isn't awesome. We should build this for him. And so we see uh, in other places, in, what are we at, number four? Go ahead and put it number four. That he has a reverence for God where he's known as a man after God's own heart. Uh, he, he knows that the ark isn't in the city of, of David. It's not in the city of Jerusalem. And he says, we should bring that. The ark represents the very presence of God. We should go get it and bring it here. Now, there's some troubles. They, they don't carry it on the poles. They put it on a cart and somebody dies and it all goes bad. But eventually they get it there. And as they finally get it there into Jerusalem, David is so excited. It says that he's dance. We have our little David Crowder song undignified. Like I would, and he goes, I'll dance even more undignified than this. And Michael, one of his wives is kind of looking down at him and like, you, you're like a fool. And he's like, I'll dance even harder if you think I look like a fool. So in other words, the point that we see is from second Samuel six, um, is that he has a, a huge reverence for God. He, he understands that the presence of God with the people is important, and he wants the presence of God to be there. If you, and I just put a, a footnote of Psalm 63. If you, if, there's many. But if you read Psalm 63, you can see his love and reverence for God. And of course, maybe the most important highlight uh, for David comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is a, this is a massive, important text in the Old Testament. So... Uh, if there is a text that you're going to remember of today, I would, I would say underline this one. This is the messianic promise where God himself verbally tells David from you, the great King is going to come. So this is where God promises David that Jesus Christ is going to come from him. Second Samuel chapter seven. Uh, I'll pick up at verse seven. In all places where I've moved and over the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why have you built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord, I took you from a pasture from following the sheep that you should be the prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from you before you. 
and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. So there's, there's part of the promise, David. Like we're still talking about him right now. You know, 3,000 years later, we're still talking about him. So he does have, make for him a great name. And then he says more. And I'll appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. A violent man shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. He's basically going to have a good, a good time as being king. And here it is. We're going to get more, here. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. Here, here it goes. This, this particular section of 12 into 13. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, immediately in context, Solomon's next, right? And Solomon has this huge kingdom. But ultimately, this is a messianic promise being made to David that he's saying, David, from you, the king of all kings is going to come from you and his kingdom is going to be established forever. That's why we're here every Sunday. We're all still waiting on the second coming of Jesus where he sets up his kingdom forever. It's not yet. It hasn't happened. Jesus is the one that ushers it in. You and I can't make it happen. Jesus is the one that sets up his kingdom. We can pray for it to happen. We can make disciples, but he's the one that ushers it in. But nevertheless, there's a promise in 2 Samuel seven thirteen where he looks at him and says, the kingdom one day is going to come and it's going to be established forever. And it's coming from your line, David. And so all the people of Israel hear this and they're looking at David's offspring. David's, that's why a, a theme of first Kings is what's the lineage of David? Who's the lineage of David? And they're going to keep watching and keep watching. And if you go to Matthew chapter 1 or Luke, I think it's chapter 3, and you look at the, the um, chronologies, you'll see that David eventually leads to Jesus. And so we're all looking for someone to come from David. And this messianic promise is a huge, huge highlight to David. I mean, to be told that Jesus Christ is going to be in your lineage is a huge thing, huge thing. Now, those are the highlights of David's life. There are obviously some lowlights. Lowlights? That's what I call them. All right, so uh, the most important one that really plagues his life comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and really the rebuke in 12. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, everyone went out to battle because this is what was happening at the time and the king should join them in battle. But at this particular time, David did not do that. David stayed in Jerusalem and didn't go out to battle. And while he's there, he sees Bathsheba. He wants to make her his bride. Uh, he brings her to him. He sleeps with her. He feared that everyone's going to realize that the child that's coming would not be her husband, Uriah's, but nevertheless would be his. And so he brings back Uriah from war uh, so that Uriah would sleep with his wife. But Uriah, this noble man, doesn't do it. Uh, and David finds out and he's like, well, he's kind of freaking out. So he sends Uriah out to fight in war and puts him on the very front line of the war, ensuring his death, ensuring his death. Um, and then he marries Bathsheba after Uriah dies. So he commits murder to Uriah and adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, the son, the child, uh, the first child of Bathsheba dies. Uh, but nevertheless, the second child, um, Solomon lives. By the way, this is just a side note. I didn't even plan on saying this, but um, this particular text is something that helped me uh, 
before Evangeline was born, not knowing what was going to happen, where David, this is the only text I think there is in the Bible about what happens with children when they die uh, at young ages. It's the only one I know of. And David says a statement, something like, cause I, I don't have it down because I wasn't planning on saying it. He says so, he's, he's grieving because God says, this, this child that you have with Bathsheba out of, out, of, out of adultery won't live. And he's grieving, as every father would. I mean, he sinned to create the child, but nevertheless, he loves every child he has. And he says, well, one day I'll see this child again. He eventually just comes out of the funk and he's like, one day I'll see this child again. So, okay, I'll get up. And so that little phrase, now, this is, this is narrative. You got to know the difference between um, destructive or prescriptive versus descriptive. So he's describing events. He's not prescribing theology. But nevertheless, in a descriptive event, David, um, who's a man after God's own heart, seemingly has the theology that we will see children who pass away again in heaven. So will children be in heaven? I think so from this text. And if something... When I knew something was going to happen to Evangeline. Um, I didn't know what. We didn't know she'd live. Um, I knew that if something happened, I would see her again one day. And so for those of you that are still thinking about your children that you've lost, um, I think we see them again. I think we see them again. Anyway, uh, and it was a very helpful text. I was, I was quite sad for a while. And that text... The word of God is the thing that brought me out of my sadness. Um, and that's, that's the goodness of the word of God. So anyway, uh, that's, that's the lo- one of the lowlights from David's life. And this thing uh, that happens to him as he marries Bathsheba eventually and they have another son named Solomon, this sin sticks with him the rest of his life and clouds most of his time as king. And uh, certainly uh, is a very negative thing that happens. There's another event that happens from second Samuel, basically chapter 13 to chapter 18, where two of his sons, uh, have this ongoing fight. Um, one of them has a sister Tamar and, um, Absalom, uh, Absalom's sister Tamar. I think it's his name's Adonijah. Adonijah sleeps with his sister, forcibly sleeps with his sister. She doesn't want to do it. And then after that, he hates her. And the whole situation is tragic uh, because eventually they, they die. One of them kills the other one. And David's handling of this, the whole, sub, the whole situation doesn't seem to be uh, good. And so the whole situation is tragic. This is a low light in the life of David with Absalom's sister and even Absalom from 2 Samuel 13 to 18. The next one is at one particular point in 2 Samuel Chapter 24, uh, it starts with David taking a census. Um, it reads like this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go throughout all the tribes of Israel, Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said, so you're like, okay, it's just taking a census. Why is that bad? Well, Here's why it's, we know it's bad from verse three. Joab said, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as they are while the eyes of my Lord is still king. But why does my Lord want to delight in this thing? Like, why do you want to do uh, a census? As in Joab, his kind of fighting guy says, this is bad. You shouldn't do it. And we see in first Chronicles 21, kind of like the, the parallel, this census that he wants to do is bad. 
And here's why, because you just think it's just counting. Why would a census be bad? In this particular context, and the record uh, that's given to us in First Chronicles, it places it right after a great victory that's happened to the Philistines. And so the sin is likely related to pride and self-reliance. As in, we need to know the number of people we have. So that when we know the number of people we have, uh, we can build up this power and we're going to rely on thinking, oh, we have a lot of people. And so when we go fight, uh, we're going to be like the pagan kings who make sure they have enough people and they only fight whenever we know we can win rather than just trusting in God that he's going to protect us. Protect us. And so uh, we're not going to rely on God overseeing and keeping us. But David's sin is that really he's not trusting God to be the protector that he should be. So he takes this census to make sure he's got a big enough amount of people to fight. And immediately when they do it, they know it's bad. And it said, it's, they says it's bad. That's uh, another low light is this towards the end of his life, the census. And then lastly, another, the last one is many wives. And again, that could be filed under number one, um, Uriah and Bathsheba, but it wasn't just Bathsheba that was part of his many wives. And that situation with Uriah and Bathsheba is so heinous that it should stand on its own as one entire low light. But as I said, David had eight wives. Um, and let's remember, even though that was a cultural thing, it shouldn't have been. It was a sin. It, it, just because everyone was doing it at the time, so it's no big deal, it's wrong. And it was wrong. And we shouldn't live like that either. It's a cultural thing. Uh, so it's no big deal to have X, Y, Z as a thing that happens in my life. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And it, having eight wives was wrong then. Fill in the blank of the things that we just make excuses of. doesn't have to be polygamy. It can be something else. Uh, it's no big deal. This is just a cultural thing. Everyone does it these days, so it's no big deal. That was wrong. And things that we, we think about in our lives are wrong. But he had eight wives. I wouldn't name them, but they're, some of them are hard to pronounce. Uh, but I have a list if you want them. Um, so... He had eight wives, and this was, this was bad. Now, signs of God's work in his life. Whenever you see uh, this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, this horrible thing he does in 2 Samuel 11 where he um, kills Uriah and sleeps with Bathsheba. In chapter 12, Nathan, the prophet, is going to come to him and confront him about it. And this is what he says to him. Uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of a story, but let's... I'm just going to read an excerpt, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to Nathan, this is right after uh, Uriah, and the, Uriah and Bathsheba incident, accident. No, I shouldn't call it incident. Sin. Right after the Uriah and Bathsheba sin. And the Lord said to Nathan, sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There are two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man, so Nathan sent to confront David about his sin. And th- he tells him this story. There are two men in a certain city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had flocks and herds everywhere, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and he grew it with him and with his children. And he used to eat the morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms. And he was like a a daughter to him, this little lamb. And now there was a traveler um, to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest. But he took the one lamb of the, pa- of the poor man's and prepared it uh, for the man that had come. And da- David heard of this because he thought it was a real story, verse 5. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. That, uh, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And David looks at, and Nathan looks at him. I mean, this is unbelievable. 
looks at the king and says, you're the man. You're the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against out of your house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly. But this thing But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born shall die. Then Nathan went into his house. And so you can see this sin that he had stuck with him the rest of his life. He had to deal with the consequences. And so nevertheless, um, what we see though is as soon as he's confronted with the sin, he does recognize that it's him. As we, as we read in Psalm 51, he, uh, whenever he's confronted, he repents of it. So when Nathan confronts him, David writes this. This is Psalm 51. Uh, in the little title, it says, The Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had uh, sinned with Bathsheba. He writes this. After being confronted with this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now, verse 4 can be troubling theologically. I'm going to explain it. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I don't think Uriah agrees with that or Uriah's parents or Bathsheba. And so that's theologically helping us see that, of course, David has sinned against these people. But ultimately, our sin, first and foremost and primarily, is sin against God. And that has to be forgiven. Of course, sin against other people is important and we should ask forgiveness. And and I'm not minimizing that. But our sin primarily is against God and we need to be forgiven. And so David recognizes this as he's saying this in verse 4. I have sinned against you, God, and that, that separates me from you and I don't want that. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you, you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In other words, we're all born sinners. No blank slate stuff. Um, And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And then here it is. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He recognizes that God's the only one that can actually cleanse him thoroughly from his sin. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit with me. There's more. I'm going to stop there. But nevertheless, what we see is even in the midst of lowlights when confronted with sin, David, because the Lord is gracious to him um, and he's a man after God's heart, recognize it and repents. 
He recognizes it and repents. So signs of God's work in his life, even after sin, is when Nathan confronts him, he listens. And if you keep going in 2 Samuel 12, you'll see he wants to do things uh, to restore. In Psalm 51, we read this repentance. So some concluding applications, and then we'll be done with the intro of 1 Kings. And we'll pick up next week um, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5, about Adonijah and Solomon. So here's some concluding applications. Number one is this. In our lives, we all should learn to repent like Psalm 51. When confronted with sin, don't be prideful. Instead, be open to the leading of the Spirit, but someone would come to you and love you and point it out. And like Psalm 51 and 2 Samuel 12, listen to those who speak to you when they say this. And when we sin, be humble to realize it and quick to confess. Quick to confess. Uh, and then if we're looking here at the context of 1 Kings 1 through 4, there's a couple things I want us to see, which is this. Uh, David, we'll talk about this more next week, but David hasn't laid out any kind of plan, right? So the second application, this is strict application. I know it's really practical, but I think it's helpful. In our families and in our church, we should have transition plans, as in when we know that our time is done on earth, or at least done, we should have plans to make it so that there's more leadership to provide for God's people. Where were David's? Seemingly nothing. His sons were fighting and scheming over the throne with no guidance from David. He's not even disciplining them and telling them to stop. He's not telling them who's going to be the next king. You contrast that with the New Testament with Jesus. When Jesus died... Transition plans were set, right? He had 12 disciples. He told them the Holy Spirit came and they're, they're spreading the gospel to the entire world. And even with Paul, who's obviously not equal with Jesus, he's discipling people. Second Timothy 2, 2, you see four generations of discipleship in Second Timothy 2, 2, where Paul is making sure that whenever we go, there's other people behind us. As Tony Morita says, we... Let we, the church, need to remember the importance of preparing the next generation of leaders and fathers and mothers and missionaries um, so that we can train and deploy kingdom servants. So we should always be thinking about the next generation of leaders. That's conclusion number two. Conclusion number three is this. Uh, back to verse one. David is old and advanced in years. One day, that's going to be the case for all of us. It hit me yesterday, I was thinking about it, that I've got less years to live than what I've already lived. I don't know why. Like, I was just, I couldn't fall asleep last night. I'm laying there, and i just like, oh, my gosh, I'm 44. My mom died at 72. I've got less years to live than I've already lived. I'm, I'm more than halfway done. And it kind of freaked me out a little bit, and then I couldn't fall asleep for a while. Um, but then I had, I'd already written this, so I had to remember. Um, gosh, there's so many things I want to do. And we can wrap our identity around doing stuff so that people know and we can feel like we're important because at the end of our life we can point to stuff we did and say i'm awesome because i did this stuff for you god or for you you know family or whoever um and we can wrap our identity around and things we've done and david it's easy for him to do that he's old he's about to die and he wrap his identity around and who he is instead we need to face our immortality, the fact that we're going to die with a gospel identity, not um, a works-based identity. All, since all of us are going to die, we must remember that doing things for God is good, 
but our identity is not bound up in the things that we do. Our identity is bound up in Jesus and in Jesus alone and what he's done. Remember, face your immortality with a gospel identity. You, who you are, what you've done and, and how you view yourself is most importantly bound up in Christ. Not in what you do. Do good things for God, of course. But don't make that your identity. Make your identity that Christ is your savior. As Tony Morita says, your identity is in who God has made you to be in Christ. You aren't your gifts. You're Christ's. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. The doctor, he says, our relationship with God, our relationship to God is taught to be our supreme cause of joy. Therefore, not our supreme cause of joy is the things we've done in life. But instead, our greatest joy in life is the fact that we are God's children. And so here's how we, I think, conclude. As we finish up, I want to go back to that text that I read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, God's talking to David, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here, God lets us know that our ultimate hope is in anyone, like person, or ourselves, or the things we've done. Instead, our only hope is Jesus. Um, The Reformation Study Bible helps us to see Christ in 1 Kings by saying this. The troubling circumstances recorded all throughout the 1 Kings ought to cause the reader to yearn for something more and something different. They ought to cause one to hope and long for new and final covenant, a new and final kingdom, a new and final king. These are the realized, these are all realized in the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son of David, the king of kings. He has established the new covenant with his people and he has ushered in the kingdom of God. And so ultimately, 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings are all pointing us to Jesus and that we wrap our identity and our lives around him and the fact that he went to the cross for us and has totally forgiven us of our sin and washed us clean. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for uh, your word that you've given to us. I pray that you would bless this time as we begin 1st Kings and study through it and that uh, an Old Testament narrative uh, would come to life to us some three, almost 3,000, 2,500 year old book um, would come to life for us and be relevant for your church. Thank you so much uh, for how all of your scriptures point us to Christ and help us see that though earthly kings fail, Jesus never fails us. We thank you, God, so much. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.